All right. Wow. Thank you, guys. Um, quick quick uh, little business. Um, some of you have seen uh, Micah down here uh, interpreting um, in sign language. And, uh, and so, one, we, we would love to find her help and uh, some other people to come in. If you know uh, of someone who does that, who knows how to interpret, first of all, you have to just imagine what it would be like to interpret my teaching. Um, into English would be a good start, right? That would be, a, that's where we want to begin. If we could have somebody just, um, uh, but to have a, to have somebody, somebody who can step up and, and take a role in that as well. If you could let, uh, if you know someone like that, or if you are someone like that, and you could talk to me or John or Elizabeth, and we'd love to, uh, we'd love to get you involved in that ministry as well. And, uh, it is funny that I had forgotten today was St. Patrick's Day. Patrick is one of my historical heroes, um, uh, as a great, there's, uh, I've read some biographies on him and, and uh, just, just the thought of a guy who is kidnapped as a child, raised in slavery for many years by the Irish, um, learns their language, finally escapes from slavery um, to, the, to the Irish people, gets back home, becomes a priest, and immediately begins his efforts to get back to Ireland to convert the people who enslaved him. Um, at some point, at least according to some biographers, was excommunicated by the Catholic Church for disobeying them. They told him not to go back to Ireland, um, so he did anyway, and uh, that, that did not make them happy at the time. And he went back, and essentially the entire, Ireland, the entire Irish island was converted uh, to Christianity under Patrick's leadership. And so just a neat, a neat guy um, when we learn about. And in an era when most of Christianity was busy trying to decide who got to be the king of Christianity versus how do we get the gospel out to other people, um, to have someone like him step up and say, that's not how we do this, um, is pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, just a neat guy. So um, again, worthy of a little research, a little study, um, if you get the chance to do that. As we're diving into the rest, and, and he does answer the question, actually, that we're looking at and that we're going to continue to be looking at is, what are, what are you going to do with Jesus? This is what we're going to be seeing in, in chapter 12 in particular. So chapters 1 through 11 have made it abundantly clear to us, to the reader, to those who are living through it, who Jesus is. That's, that has been what has been going on in chapters 1 through 11, is who is this Jesus character? What's going on with him? Um, why is he here? Why did he come? Who is he? And, and this week, I was, I was reminded of a passage that, that I was reminded of after I turned it in, so, so uh, Dave and the team up there doesn't have it on the screens, which is fine. You've got a Bible in front of you, or you can just listen. In Luke 4, we get the account, and this is one of my favorite things to teach in Israel, is to actually stand in a synagogue and, and teach through this passage in Luke 4, where Jesus comes up and they hand him a scroll of Isaiah, because apparently that's what they were reading from that day. Um, that's part of what happens in the Jewish faith is that at the synagogue, they read a certain section and then they close the scroll and they read the next section and the next set week after week after week. And so this is what gets handed to Jesus. And coincidentally, this is the, I mean that with scare quote, right? So coincidentally, Jesus, Jesus, this is the passage that Jesus reads that, that he is given to read. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and this was his, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he just dropped the scroll. Dexel doesn't say that. Um, this is, as we engage with 
this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, understanding that he came to accomplish liberty, freedom, um, sight, the things that we've been seeing all through the book of John, to take those who were dead and give them life, to take those who were blind and give them sight, not only literally, but spiritually for everyone, literally for some, spiritually for everyone. That's what's going on in the book of John is what has been going on. We've seen Jesus make a a man born blind, make him able to see. We've seen him feed thousands of people. But these weren't an end. These were a means. We just saw in chapter 11, John, I mean, Jesus go to someone who was dead, Lazarus, and raise him from the dead. So naturally in John 12, what you have to get is, and how are people going to respond to this Jesus? Last week, we looked at one of the most inspiring stories of ever told anywhere, ever. And the more deeply you dig into it, the more heart-rending it becomes as Mary um, takes her great gift, um, her treasure, she pours it over Jesus' head to anoint him as king and priest, and Jesus is going to tell us, and more than that, here in a second, and then to lay down on the floor and take the glory of a woman, which is her hair, in the Jewish world, and to wash, to wipe the oil off his feet as it's pooled on the floor, on the ground, with her hair. Um, this is just unbelievable, the, 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 the level of undignity that that is. The indignity of laying on, your, on the ground and using your hair to clean a man's feet, especially in this day and age, is just, it's just unthinkable. A, a modern-day Jewish woman would consider it unthinkable. 2,000 years ago, it was much worse. And that's what we see with Mary, taking everything, her very identity, the core of who she is, and laying it at his feet, literally. You've heard his claims, you've experienced his signs, you've heard his arguments. If you've been here every week, or if you've read through the book of John, you've heard those. And now John is going to give us the responses of a handful of different people in John 12 in order for us to begin to understand what is going on here. And, and what do we need to be doing? How is our response going to be? So we have that response of Mary. We have the response of Martha, who served. Nothing extraordinary, nothing, nothing that's, that's worthy of song necessarily, but serving, taking her gifts and serving and doing it well. And known for it, goes down through history as being the model of someone who serves. This is, a, this is a step in the right direction that we use what God has given us to respond to this. We have Mary who is over the top with her expression. So you've heard those. Then you get to verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, parentheses, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, and given to the poor. Now we talked about last week, a denarii is, uh, a denarius is a single day's wage. You get paid that for working one day. It's enough to provide for your family, hopefully, for one day. This is 300 denarii. If you take off Sabbaths and holidays, that's pretty much a year. So one year's income, we talked about that, how a year's income for us today on average in Texas is about 70 grand. So if you have household income, you go, this was, a, this was something that by our standards today would be $70,000 poured out. So she pours it on his head, she pours it on his feet. What's wild is Judas is offended by this action. 
Now, the other gospels tell us that he wasn't the only one grumbling. John is the one who tells us it's Judas. The others say some of them, or, or some, they kind of grumbled about this, which makes sense. You don't imagine Judas being the type to just declare himself immediately, do you? You don't think of Judas as the kind of guy who just goes toe-to-toe out in the open. Of course, that's not how termites react to things. They hide, and they chew, and they undermine. They're not gutsy enough, usually, to step up and take a stand. And so probably what Judas did to start was he leaned over to somebody else, and he was like, can you believe he, she did that? I mean, we could have sold that. It could have been like that. That's probably how this started, and they all start grumbling. We'll get to the response to that here in a second. He said this, though. John, John wants us to make clear. Remember, John had all these decades after the other apostles were dead to think back on things. Plus, there's all the, the, the decades between when Jesus ascended into heaven and Judas was dead and, and when the, the other apostles began to be martyred. And so you can imagine, we don't know how this plays out. We don't know how he knew this, but John wants us to know. I think John is particularly offended by Judas. Matthew seems to give Judas the most leeway, and maybe that makes sense. Matthew, the tax collector, understands what it's like to be a, a messed up person to be on the wrong side of history. Matthew gets that. And so maybe Matthew's a little more tolerant of Judas. John is not. Every time John references him, he references, this is Judas, just in case you forgot since I mentioned it three chapters ago, he's the one who's gonna betray Jesus. Which makes sense. If you're an 11-year-old or 12-year-old and an 18, 19, 20-year-old who you've been traveling with for three years with Jesus and you looked up to this guy and then he turns out to be the one who betrays Jesus, and you're a 12-year-old, you're a 13-year-old, yeah, I'll, I'll bet that's, that's extra offensive. If you're a middle schooler in a youth group and a senior in a youth group messes up, man, it's an idol falling. And I think John spent years. How did he know this was going on? We don't know. Um, it's, it's interesting that this is up here, in, in here in this passage. John wants us to know. It's not because, and here's you go, Jesus is going to point out, by the way, even if all he cared about was the poor, he still would have been wrong. Even if he was concerned about the poverty stricken, this application would still be wrong. But here John wants us to not even give Judas that credit. No, no. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and he used to help himself to it. This is, again, were they, were they sitting around the Sea of Galilee fishing one day? And one of them says like, you know, I just, I, you know that Judas... I just, I think I just can't stand him. I mean, he, I can't believe he betrayed the Lord. And one of the guys was like, you know what? Not only that, but I used to always notice when I would get money out of the money bag, if Judas had had it recently, it always seemed like a little, it was a little lighter than it should have been. And Bartholomew goes like, you know what? I noticed that too. And they start talking amongst themselves like, he was a thief the whole time. We don't know. We don't know how they found this out. Did Jesus tell them that it was like that Judas had left a note? Like we don't, we don't know the, we don't know the story, but somehow this came out and John wants us to know this is not a good guy. In fact, who is this Judas person? Let's spend a minute here. We get Judas by name, multiple different places. Judah, the root of Judas comes from the, the, the tribe Judah, um, which means praised. Um, So it seems ironic in this case. Um, Iscariot, we know that he is the son of Simon Iscariot, Judas Iscariot. Iscariot probably just means from the region of Kiriath, or his family was from the region of Kiriath. So we have a map. There we go. So 
There's a couple of things, and again, if you've, if you've not been, you don't know your way around, all right, so here we are at the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, so the Sea of Galilee is going to be way up here, way north, so the Salt Sea and then the Sea of Galilee way up here, and Jerusalem is going to be right about here. It's almost on this map. Right in here is Jerusalem, the capital. So north is Galilee, where all the disciples that we know where they're from, they all come from the Galilee region, not Judas. So Jerusalem up here, Galilee even further north. Judas comes from this area, south, Kirioth. Right on the edge of the hills here. It gets pretty desert down here. Um, Tel Arad is pretty much in the middle of a desert. So here you have, he's, he's from a different place than the other disciples. Don't know if that has any significance. Um, but he's not from where the others are from. Maybe that consider, and probably given the nature of Galilee, what we understand of it, if you weren't from Galilee, you probably thought of yourself as better than people from Galilee. Um, whether you are or not, it will be open to debate, but, but they thought of themselves as a little probably better than people from Galilee. Some people have noted that uh, Iscariot is similar to the Latin word Sicarius, which means assassin. So it's possible that the name Iscariot was actually a name given to Judas later by the disciples. Probably not, though. It's possible, but it's, it's, it's um, more likely it literally just means he's from Iscariot, from the Kiriath region. Um, but one of the reasons I like to show the map is to remind you this is a real person who's from a real place. This is, this is not an invented character. This isn't the big bad wolf. Um, this isn't somebody from a fairy tale. Judas was real. He walked the earth and followed them. We learn about his father. His father's, uh, uh, the name of his father, his father's name was Simon, Simon Iscariot. John mentions it twice. We don't know if there's significance to that. Did everybody know who Simon was? Had he become an enemy of the church at some point? Did Simon Iscariot, a famous person, had he converted and become a Christian and so everyone knew who he was as well? We don't know. Minimally, probably that we're dealing with, because we're dealing with, and by the way, we don't get the, father, the names of the fathers of, of hardly any of the other disciples. Um, a couple we do, but not many. With that being said, this is an honor-shame culture. And so the actions of the son bear out on the honor of the father. And it may just be that John wants to remind us that Simon was his father because Simon deserves his share of the shame for raising Judas. It's pretty painful regardless. John is not happy with Judas at all. The pastor A.W. Tozer has a whole sermon, you can actually look it up online, about the childhood of Judas. Now, it's all supposition because not even A.W. Tozer can know what happened in Judas' childhood. Uh, but but it was a, it's a fascinating study as he talks about what type of father Simon might have been to raise a son like Judas. It's interesting to read. It's interesting to listen to. Excuse me. It's an interesting to listen to. Um, it may be some significance, maybe not. A little more of where he comes from. So Jesus, it tells us in Luke chapter 6. After he had been teaching for a while, and there's numerous, numerous followers of his, hundreds, thousands of followers, it tells in Luke 6, and these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. When day came, he called his disciples, meaning all of them, and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, which means sent. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. <clears throat> Referring to them also back in John 6, when we went through John 6, 
In 70, Jesus answered, said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Of course, John, in case you don't know which one that is, says, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Again, John wants that abundantly clear. Jesus was revealed as the one to betray Jesus at the Last Supper. We'll get there. Um, there's some pretty powerful stuff with that. In fact, Jesus is the one who instructs him to go do it. Um, John, after all those years, seems most offended. Um, as the disciples compared notes and talked about their three years with Jesus, and all of this must have slowly been revealed to them, who they had been dealing with all, these time, all this time. What motivated him? Um, what motivated Judas? Some want to give him a positive motive. Um, they want to give him, uh, I actually heard a sermon about that that I'll reference here in a second. But it really, that, that, the desire to give Judas a positive motive goes all the way back to a Gnostic gospel from around the year 200 AD, the gospel of Judas. Um, in that, Judas comes across not only as being positively motivated, but actually being the one who, who kind of helps Jesus out with the whole uh, salvation thing. Um, that it turns out it's really Judas's plan in the, in the gospel according to Judas, that Judas is the one who kind of talks a nervous, hesitant Jesus into going through with this job um, that he has. Um, let me tell you just for a second about Gnostic gospels, just because you're going to hear about them periodically, and I just don't want you to freak out when it happens again. Every few years, the media rediscovers, for example, the gospel of Judas, um, or the gospel of Philip, or the gospel of Mary, and they freak out about it as if they just, this is the first time anyone's ever heard about them. Um, it's not. Um, every once in a while, a new one is found. The Gospel of Judas was found in 1970, for example. Um, and so one will get uncovered like this, and people flip out about it. But let me, let me explain. The Gnostics were a, uh, a, a religion that coincided with Christianity. For a long time, they taught that it was an offshoot of Christianity. But I think the best research now is that it more just coincided with Christianity. And the Gnostics really weren't making a whole lot of headway, and Christianity was. So the Gnostics kind of linked into Christianity in some ways that they tried to, to do that. The theology of Gnosticism is nothing like the theology of Christianity, nothing like it. Like, they're, they're radically different. It is much more similar to Scientology, to modern-day fact. I, I think that's essentially what, uh, what Hubbard did, is he finally found a con that worked, which was to steal Gnostic theology and call it Scientology and, and make a lot of money off of it. So um, here we have the Gnostics came around. They showed up about the same time as Christianity, but their writings typically came much later. So when people say, when they throw a fit, when they discover like the gospel of Judas, and you go, and they come out and they make up, the media makes a big deal, these closed-minded, uneducated, backwards Christians didn't like what was in this gospel, they didn't like what was in the book of Judas, so they just didn't put it in there because they didn't like it. Um, that's not accurate even a little bit. Um, here's what it's really more like. I want you to imagine that I decide to write um, an article for the Constitution, in the article, it says, I'm going to do this like today. This afternoon, I'm going to write an article that says, people with red hair are inherently superior to people of, with other hair colors, and therefore, only redheads should be allowed to hold public office. Okay? Right. I've got some fans, right? <laughs> <clears throat> and then I sign it, Thomas Jefferson. Okay? And then I demand to be put in the Constitution. Now, why wouldn't it be put in the Constitution? Well, one... It wasn't written by Thomas Jefferson. It was written by me, right? And I don't have any special standing for things to go in the Constitution. Two, it was written a couple hundred years after we stopped writing the Constitution, right? So it's a couple hundred years later. Three, it defies the entire purpose of the Constitution, right? Other than that, it makes total sense why you would put it in, right? 
Those exact same three reasons are why the early Christians did not look at the Gnostic Gospels and say, maybe we should include them in. I mean, after all, it says it's the Gospel of Philip. I mean, it wasn't written by Philip. Philip was long dead before it was written. It was written hundreds of years in some cases after the whole story of, of Jesus was done, had played out, and whoever wrote it wasn't there when it happened. Oh, and it's exactly in defiance of everything that the Christian Gospels teach. Other than that, you can see why we would want to put them in. It's, it's ridiculous. You're gonna, again, every few years, I'm telling you, every few years, there'll be a new Time Life book that comes out as Time Life rediscovers the Gnostic Gospels, and suddenly it's, it's a big shocking uh, headline news. Yeah, just move along. Um, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, it's fun to read, and the more you read it, the more ridiculous it will sound um, that it should have been considered. Now, back to the question. What motivated Judas? Um, again, <clears throat> uh, Matthew, listen to what Matthew says here. This is, this is kind of the kindest thing said about Judas um, anywhere in Scripture. Um, we see what seems to be a change of heart here in Matthew. When, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. So this sounds like a change of heart, and maybe it was. Maybe this is true repentance. Um, we have a weird understanding of suicide nowadays. We have a sermon about that and on the website, but that's different from the Jewish understanding, largely because we have many intervening years of Roman Catholicism teaching us that, that it's a, a more, always a mortal sin. Only recently has the Catholic Church moved off of some of that teaching. But for the Jewish mindset, there were totally appropriate times for taking your own life, as we see all throughout Scripture. Um, so in that mind, this, this may be a representation of Judas's conversion. This is a representation of Judas's repentance, that he threw the money back. He gave the money back. He repented that what he did was wrong, and he was so overcome with grief that he killed himself. Possible. We'll see. But what's fascinating is, and this, by the way, this is as good as it gets for Judas, right here. Um, I, I heard a sermon when I was a brand new seminary student. I mean, I had been in my first semester and I went back home to church and we had a guest speaker and the guest preacher's title of his sermon was, You Will See Judas in Heaven. Okay? And so his whole sermon was based on the premise that Judas' motivation was pure, that Judas was just trying to push Jesus into a corner so that, Judas would, um, so that Jesus would, would, um, would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Romans and we would get to see the big fight and Jesus would be declared <clears throat> the king of the Jews and, and that's what Judas was fighting for. He was trying to push for that moment. And he got done with the sermon, which I thought was interesting, and, and just as a new seminary student, I went up afterwards and said, hey, I've got some questions. I don't... I'm new to seminary. I don't know much about this kind of stuff yet, but I'm curious about some things. I noticed that in your sermon, you didn't mention the John 12 passage where John says Judas was a thief. He's like, no, I didn't, I didn't mention that one. It's like, and you, you didn't mention the John 6 passage where Jesus refers to Judas as a devil. You didn't, you didn't mention that. He's like, no, no, I didn't. I said, and I noticed that you didn't reference the, um, the Mark 14 passage for the Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. Now that sounds pretty damning, literally pretty damning. And he said, you're right, I didn't reference those because they didn't really back the point that I was making. <laughs> so just so you'll know, for those of you who aren't seminary students, that's not allowed. 
you're, you're not allowed to do that. This is, this is basic hermeneutics, the art and science of studying Scripture. And so I want to challenge you just for a second because to be, I believe, honestly, to be a Christian, really, to be a Christ follower, really, but even with the concept that we call ourselves sometimes evangelical, we're kind of left with this idea that what, means, what evangelical means isn't all the political junk that's attached to it. It means that I submit to the authority of Scripture. That's really what it means. That my opinions, my thoughts, my ideas are defeated by Scripture. That, that I submit to that. That my, my own agenda is submitted to Scripture. And so if I say to someone who claims to be an evangelical, I might say in some populations, this may or may not be applicable here, but I might say, so if you were absolutely convinced, I'm not saying this, I'm not even arguing this right now, but if you were absolutely convinced that homosexual behavior was sin, then you would say, you would also call it sin, even if you're uncomfortable with calling it sin, you would still call it sin. And you would make sure that wasn't part of your life to the degree you're able as a fallen human. You would say, you know what? I confess that that is sin. I agree with Scripture that that's sin. Whether I think it is or not is irrelevant. What does Scripture say? And that's what I'll submit to, right? Now, in this population, it might be a little more challenging to say, ah, but what if you decided that Christian pacifism is what Scripture teaches? That what if you studied Scripture and you came away with the conclusion that it is wrong, it is morally wrong for Christians, for Christ followers, to defend themselves physically. That it's wrong to harm or kill another person to defend yourself. What if you came away from Scripture with that belief? Again, I'm not saying whether it's there or not. I have lots written on both of those on my website that I don't have time to get into this morning. But let's say you read Scripture and you walked away going, I'm convinced now that that's what Jesus wants us to do from Scripture. The question is, would you submit? Would you, would you sell things that you own and change your plans and change your behavior based on that? If not, you're not an evangelical. If we go to Scripture and say, no, no, I've got ideas, and now I'm going to go to Scripture and try to back my ideas with Scripture, that's called eisegesis. My ideas, and Scripture backs it. Exegesis, which is how we try to teach here, imperfectly, that's how we try, is to say, the Bible has ideas, I apply them to me, not I apply my ideas to Scripture. That's the goal for Christians. For people who claim to believe Scripture is inspired by God, is that we would say, what does Scripture teach? How do I apply that to my life? Now, we may disagree on what it teaches. We may disagree on even how to apply it, but that we would agree, listen, if we come to a conclusion about that this is how it's supposed to be, we submit to that. Make sense? That's what it means to be a student of Scripture. It is, by definition, uncomfortable. I don't want Scripture to teach me something that I don't like. You don't either. But that's what it's for, largely, is to convict us when we're wrong. So again, I'm not making a statement about either one of those. Don't have time to dig into or defend them today. I'm saying, what if you were able to go to Scripture and defend it Are you decided in advance, whatever I discover there, I will submit to that because that's what it means to follow Christ in Scripture. You don't get to say, well, those three passages don't back my point, so I'm going to ignore those. Bad news. Now, back to our story. Um, Judas has now confronted Mary. This is a wild concept. It appears that Judas is instantly offended 
by the worship of Jesus Christ by Mary. This level of worship is offensive to him, which makes sense. 30 pieces of silver, which is what he's going to get paid to betray Jesus, is about six weeks' wages, probably. And we're looking at a year's wages that just got dumped out in front of him. You better believe he's offended. You better believe he's mad. That's a fortune that he could have had access to his own greed. No matter what anyone says, by the way, whether you think that Judas had proper motives or was rightly motivated or you want to try to defend his motives or if you think that he was one of the most evil people who ever walked the earth who opened himself up to be invaded by the personality of Satan himself, Regardless, what you're stuck with is Judas was motivated by Judas's agenda. That's what Judas brings to the table, is Judas's agenda, Judas's philosophy, and what he thinks Jesus needs to be doing, and what he thinks is people are supposed to be doing for Judas. That's where he runs into it. And what happens is Mary does not follow Judas's plan. And so Judas is offended. Then Jesus is offended by Judas's agenda. This should be scary for anyone in leadership. God forbid that someday Jesus says, yeah, I was deeply offended by your agenda. That's scary stuff. I don't, I don't, I don't want to experience that. I don't want Jesus to have to shut me down in this. None of us do. Judas says what he says, and Jesus says in verse seven, leave her alone. So she may keep that for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. This is pretty amazing. This is like the wise men. The wise men came to bring Jesus these three gifts. And because they were so well researched, apparently, they show up not only for the gifts of a king, like gold, not only for the gifts for a priest, like frankincense, which she just anointed Jesus king and priest. She dumped this, this spikenard on his head. Um, I believe that when you combine the passages, this is what happens. is She dumps it on his head. It runs down his body. It pools at his feet. She wipes his feet off with her hair. She is, she is anointing him as the priest and king, the Messiah, the teacher, all of these things. And Jesus clarifies, no, no, not just king, not just priest, but corpse. She is, she is doing this for my burial. It may be literally she's been keeping it for his burial or that she's trying to save some to use at his burial or whatever this is, but it seems that she has dumped it out on him. And that last week, studying for last week is when I had, it had never dawned on me until this. And as this is the poem. There's a poem that I read that struck me um, about this. Um, yet we have the poem up there, John Bannister's. I bring thee balm and lo, thou art not here. This is a poem written from the perspective of the women who showed up at the tomb with myrrh and nard to, ripe, to wrap his body. And, and it's kind of an, almost a tongue-in-cheek poem about the fact that they're offended that Jesus didn't bother to wait around for them to come wrap his body. I bring thee balm, and lo, thou art not here. Twice have I poured mine ointment on thy brow. Talking about the two times that people poured it on his head. And wash thy feet with my tears. Disdain'st thou now the spikenard and the myrrh? Like now? Now you're going to disdain the fact that I've showed up with the spike and the, the spikenard and the myrrh? What struck me when I read that poem was Mary is the only person who anoints Jesus' body for burial. She does it days in advance. But no one else gets to do it. 
When the women show up at the tomb, and by the way, Mary is apparently not one of the Marys who shows up at the tomb. This Mary, Mary of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This Mary, does not, a lot of other Marys do, but not this one. They show up at the tomb. That's apparently not her. Why not? Don't know, except one may be. She's already done her job. When they go, hey, we're going to go, we're going to go wrap his body. We're going to go. She's like, I'm sorry, I don't have any perfume to put on his body, so I can't come. Why don't you have any perfume? Well, I, man, I dumped out my perfume on him five days ago, seven days ago, whatever it was. That's, that's a cool thought. She's the only one who gets to anoint his body. No one else gets to do so. So here you have Judas's response. You have Mary's response. You have you have Martha's response to who Jesus is. I want to comment just for one second on this phrase, for the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is a tough one for people who think that the reason Jesus came to earth was to be a social justice warrior. Because it's pretty much evidence that Jesus did not come to earth to be a social justice warrior. Um, and I, I think that's because Jesus did not come to earth primarily to be a social justice warrior. Certainly, if he can feed 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish, he could have ended world hunger. He could have snapped his fingers, and rather than curing one man at Bethesda, he could have cured the whole world of disease. He certainly had the power. He could have called down legions of angels. He could have ended Roman rule and could have ended slavery around the world. Jesus could have ended all forms of oppression Apparently, that wasn't his plan. That wasn't, he had bigger fish to fry in regards to that type of stuff. He had a bigger battle to fight. He wasn't finishing the war. He was just crippling the enemy. And in the end, he would finish, in the end, he will finish this war that he concluded. He crippled him. He ended him. He defeated him. The final victory comes in the end. He finished the work then when he said, the work, I am finished. And yet, even in the midst of that, what he finished there is still more that he's going to do when he declares himself finally um, in the power and the fullness of who he is when he comes back. This is significant. It's too easy sometimes for us to think this is always the right answer. The, the thing is, we don't know what God is calling each of us. Isn't it funny that in this situation, Jesus is calling out, he doesn't call out Judas as a thief. He calls out Judas as having misplaced motivation. No, no, you will always have the poor with you. You only have me right now, and I'm going to be dead in just a few days. She just got to anoint my body. Is it wrong to take care of the poor? Of course not. This is the very same Jesus who told the rich young ruler to sell everything and give it to the poor. The problem is, here's our problem, is that sometimes in modern Christianity, social justice is a replacement for the gospel, and it is a terrible replacement for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As an expression, a living out of the gospel, totally appropriate. Social justice under the heading of traditional biblical justice, totally appropriate. Great way to express who we are. Jesus calls us to do it. The, the gospel writers, J James, the letter writers, they encourage us to do that. They challenge us to do it. They command us to take care of the oppressed. They tell us that true religion is taking care of the oppressed, the widows and the orphans. All of that is not bad under the heading of the gospel. As an expression of the gospel, it is great power. As a replacement for the gospel, it's heresy. It is not gospel. The church did not come to be the savior of the world. We are the expression of the savior of the world, but we can't save the world. Only Jesus Christ has that capacity. We look to him for that. It's, I think this is an important understanding in today's world. Sometimes the social justice movement, when it is partnering with the church, too often becomes 
A gospel without a Christ and without a cross and without the shed blood. And it can't be that. Jesus isn't just an example for us on how to treat each other, though he certainly is an example for us on how to treat each other, especially take care of other Christians. We will see in John 13, in the most, maybe the most powerful teaching ever done in the history of mankind, you can argue whether the Sermon on the Mount or the uh, Upper Room Discourse is, is, is stronger, but in the Upper Room Discourse, he's going to tell us, they will know you by your love for one another, by the way we love each other. He's going to command us to do that. It's a powerful new commandment that he gives us. But I, I don't want us to ever mistake to equate taking care of oppressed people as the same thing as the gospel. It's a great opportunity to share the gospel. It's a great way to express the gospel. It isn't by itself the gospel as Jesus has shown us. There are times when it's appropriate, like right now. It may be that some of you should not be here today. You should be someplace else ministering or someplace else serving or someplace else. We've got, wait, there's a, a family in the church who what they do on Sunday mornings is they go teach at nursing homes. So they're pretty much never here because they're preaching at nursing homes on Sunday morning. I think that's what they ought to be doing. It's what God called them to do. I think some of us need to be doing other things, and sometimes we need to be here. I don't think there's an automatic. Sometimes we need to be worshiping in community, and sometimes we need to be serving, and sometimes we need to be taking care of the oppressed, and sometimes we just need to be falling on our face before God and washing his feet with our hair. It's not always one or the other. None of those are in comp- should be in competition with each other. In Matthew 5, Jesus gives us the correct interpretation. Why do we do good things? In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what motivates our good works is that people would, would give glory to God. We could do more on this. There's no time. So then finally, we get our last response in this passage to Jesus for now. So you have Mary and Martha. You have Judas. You have the Jews. You have the disciples. We'll see them in action. Here we have the Pharisees. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only in account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because in account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the ultimate and earliest expression. Judas and the Pharisees are the earliest expression of eisegesis that we see, of taking what they believe and applying it. The response of Mary to Lazarus being raised from the dead is over-the-top gratefulness as she pours out all she has, including her own dignity, to worship Jesus. Judas has his own agenda, and he tries to apply it to the situation. No, no, this is the way I think it should be. And the, and the Pharisees times 10, they double down. Their response to Jesus is this. We double down on pride. We double down on arrogance. We double down on egocentrism. We double down on sin. They go from being first-degree murderers in action to now a conspiracy of mass murderers. I know. I get it. I'm too powerful, too smart, too important, or even too religious to submit to this image, to submit to who Jesus Christ is. Far be it for me to debase myself, to sacrifice my dignity, to sacrifice my treasure, to sacrifice my agenda. Far be it for me to do that because I know better. That's the response they give. This is a great picture that John paints for us in just these very few verses for us to choose from. Where am I going to respond? If you're already a believer, where am I going to respond? 
So I hope that these, these, last, these last two weeks, so these two verses after the response of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, these different examples, I hope that they hit each of us. That we go, how do I move up the scale towards being discipled by Mary? Maybe the greatest example of worship of all time, one of the top 10, gotta be, how do we get there? How do we move in that direction? Maybe you're at Martha and you're like, I serve, I give what I have, I, I do my best, I do what comes naturally to me, which is a great thing in the Bible calls us to do, but, but pushing on in this direction, how do I continue to find more to go, okay, but what else do I have that would be worth giving to Jesus? God forbid we're way down here at the other end going, saying, you know what, I'm, I'm just too smart for this stuff. I'm just too whatever for this stuff. I'm even too religious for this stuff. I'm too Baptist. I'm too churchy. I'm too Tyler. I'm too Texas. I'm too whatever to to really submit this stuff. God forbid. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that our priorities will be right. That we will focus in on what you have for us. That we would sacrifice the best we can. And we're terrible at this stuff, Lord, all of us. we would sacrifice the best as best we can, our own agendas, our own thoughts, our own philosophies, and submit to you the best we can. And I pray that you would, you would never have to, I pray that you would never have to call us out to be offended by our agendas. And I pray you would protect us from being offended by your agenda. I pray that, Lord, you would, you would help us to be patient and kind as we seek to listen and engage with what you have for us. Um, Father, we would love each other well in the midst of of living this stuff out. Father, wherever we are on this kind of continuum that, that your student, John, created for us, from Mary all the way down to the Pharisees, I pray we would look for the Judas in each of us, the Pharisee in each of us, even the Jews who are just interested, intrigued. I pray that you would help us to find where we are in different areas of our life and move forward and that we would begin to live out the sacrifice in our marriages, in our homes, with our kids, with our neighbors, with our friends, in our church, in our community, and to the othermost parts of the world. Help us to submit our agenda to you, Lord. Thank you that we are in our midst of us being awful at this. You love us so we can learn to love you too. We appreciate it. We ask this, Lord, the magnificent name of your awesome son. Amen.